We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. My name is Jari Bolander. Welcome to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. On this podcast, we're going to take a deep dive into the traits, values, beliefs, and skills of all sorts of entrepreneurs to learn how to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient world. Let's get started. Today on the podcast, I interview DJ Didana, entrepreneur and author. We talk about why sabbaticals are a powerful tool for both organizations and individuals. I met DJ at the StoryGrid nonfiction workshop in Nashville, Tennessee, right before the COVID-19 shelter-in-place orders were given. DJ's journey to take a sabbatical goes directly through his experience as an entrepreneur and the struggles he had with burnout. We explore the benefits of a sabbatical and some surprising data on who actually takes them. He is also working on a book from the findings of the research collected from the Sabbatical Project, an organization that's looking to champion the idea that sabbaticals add a lot of value to both people and organizations. That research has revealed, among other things, that sabbaticals are not only for the privileged, but can benefit all sorts of people. We also talk about how a life disruption gives us the same type of perspective as a sabbatical, and in some cases, that's too late to do anything about that's why he wants to change the culture surrounding sabbaticals and get more people to take them. Now, let's get better together. DJ Didana, thanks for being on the podcast. How are you? Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm, I'm doing well, considering. I mean, again, we're all sort of sequestered in our home, so we're doing this over everyone's new best friend, which is Zoom. Um, can you give us just a quick background of, you know, what you're doing, where you came from, kind of the nickel tour? Absolutely. So 
My current role is I uh, started a organization called the Sabbatical Project. So basically we're a research organization trying to better understand and, and advocate and enable people to be able to take sabbaticals. Um, the way I came about it um, kind of relates to my entrepreneurial journey. But first, I think it's important to define the term sabbatical because it's a bit loose. Um, everyone kind of thinks of you know, academic sabbaticals for tenured professors, one year every seven years to do research. Uh, how we think about it is an extended period of time off from routine work uh, for a purpose. So extended typically means, uh, you know, longer than your average vacation. I think that most people uh, would be three to six months um, and away from routine work. That doesn't mean that you're uh, not doing anything and just sitting on the beach, but you're not doing your, your normal kind of routine job and then for a purpose. So just to differentiate people that are, you know, just looking for a job the entire time or kind of like, you know, frantically worried that they don't have a job, uh, you know, kind of owning that time and, and uh, making a container to actually accomplish something. Um, as far as my, a little bit about my journey, I started a company about 10 years ago now that, that uh, credit scoring in emerging markets. So how do you kind of create uh, lending and, and credit scoring in places where they don't have the same infrastructure as we do in more developed countries? So we created a credit score using alternative data. So things like psychometrics and uh, business skills that, that would be in a, like a separate bank application to enable banks to lend money to entrepreneurs and, and individuals uh, across the world. Wow. Um pretty big uh, gap, I guess, <laughs> between uh, credit scoring and sabbaticals. So, I mean, there's got to be a story behind why you want to do some sabbatical work. Can you can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so I guess the, the first thing is why did I get into credit scoring? I mean, to me, uh, I went to business school and, and kind of my goal there was to continue an entrepreneurial journey. I'd, I'd worked for startups and fast-growing companies. I worked for Angie's List in Indianapolis um, through a fellowship that tries to retain talent in the state of Indiana, where I went to college. Um, and when I went to business school, I wanted to do something that was entrepreneurial. I wanted to do something that you know, helped people. And I wanted to do something that was more global in, in nature, kind of, kind of want to have this global experience. And so I, I was basically able to create my dream job. I co-founded a company with a couple of professors who had done this research around psychometrics and alternative data. And so, you know, I, I was sitting pretty after business school. Here I was saying, all right, I checked all three boxes that I wanted to accomplish. And I went to a great school. I, I co-founded a company. Entrepreneurship is you know, socially acceptable. And, um, and so I was kind of doing everything that I felt like I wanted to do based on, you know, my kind of conditioning and the experiences that I'd had. And about five years in, you know, my co-founder and I looked at each other and we're like, man, this is, why are we so tired? Why is, <laughs> why is this so difficult? And I think that one of the, the messages that at least I didn't hear as an entrepreneur is you know, just how to kind of take care of yourself and also how I think the things that get you there aren't necessarily the things that are going to get you to the next stage. And so, you know, it turns out that I was, I was pretty burnt out. I mean, looking back, I had kind of the, the classic textbook definitions of, you know, decreased self-efficacy and, you know, being tired and, uh, and all those sorts of things, which become a vicious cycle. Oh yeah, for um, sure. But There's I didn't really, no doubt. I didn't really know what those were. And, and moreover, 
when you're doing the thing that you feel like is your dream job or the thing you should be doing, um, it's very confusing. If that thing is not fulfilling, then what? So I think even acknowledging that you aren't doing well, uh, aren't feeling well doing the thing that, that you want to do um, can have like major effects on you, right? Um, oh, yeah. I mean, so, a lot of entrepreneurs, like their whole world is wrapped up in what they do. Exactly. Um, and you're getting a lot of approval from external, you know, sources. We were getting, you know, published in the New York Times. We had Harvard Business Review cases. And so, like, nothing should be wrong here, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, eventually, you know, we both kind of cleared this space. And, and I, I took a, a five-month sabbatical. So, I created a sabbatical policy for the company and, and took time off. And that was, you know, I had not taken more than probably 10 days off, I don't know, since high school, right? Um, and so that was, that was quite new. And I think being able to take more than two weeks off is an experience that most Americans will never have. Yeah. Um, and on that, I mean, it, it really helped me to see, um, how closely intertwined my identity was with, with the company and the work and the people and, um, and also, and how that didn't really allow me to change and evolve and consider doing something else, um, until, you know, that was successful. And as with most kind of startup journeys, you're always, you know, six to nine months away from abject failure and six to nine <laughs> months away from certain success. Yeah, I know. It's a huge roller coaster ride. I don't think a lot of people understand that all those overnight successes are mostly <laughs> like, nope, no, there's no overnight success here. It's seven years of just back backbreaking work. Sorry. Yeah. And even, you know, I was at a, a party a couple months ago and, and um, the CEO of a, a pretty famous uh, kind of uh, consumer software organization was there. And I was telling him about my, about my current work with sabbaticals. And, you know, I was like, well, this probably doesn't apply to you, but, you know, because your company is so successful. But in my experience, I never felt like we were successful, even though we had a lot of the markings of success. And he's like, listen, I absolutely never feel successful. Yeah. No, no. It's <laughs> like my board's always com complaining yeah. about this and yep. that. And I'm looking at him being like, if this person doesn't feel like he's successful, like who can possibly feel that way, right? So I don't think it's just kind of an early startup experience. Oh, no, not at all. I mean, and it's also the external trappings of success, right? I mean, I think that's the main thing that entrepreneurs sort of get wrapped around the axle on. You know, everyone's always crushing it, making my numbers, you know, doubling every week, you know got my product market fit, got my one metric that matters, you know, all the buzzword bingo and all that sort of stuff. That's just, you know, reality is that's absolutely not true. Most people aren't crushing it. Most people aren't having great time of it. I mean, in it, it's, I mean, it's a journey, which I know is, is gets overused a lot, but still, you know, if, if you can really realize that those external trappings are just fleeting, which I think it sounds like you've kind of come to that conclusion, that uh, you just you just feel better. I mean, I do. I mean, don't get me wrong. I want to make money, right? That's no got to eat and everything. But my my metrics for success are a lot different now. Right, and I think you know, fast forwarding to to where I am now. So moral of the story, I came back from that, um, that sabbatical experience, um, stepped back, you know, onto the board of the company. We actually ended up getting acquired within that next year. And so it was interesting because I got to have the experience of 
um, feeling as though I was convicted that um, that I should leave, even though I didn't know the the end, the conclusion of the sabbatical journey. Um, and then I got to have, so I got to make that decision still with a lot of uncertainty, but knowing that it was the right thing for me to do versus having an external uh, validation, which we, we eventually got. But I feel like I, I was able to have that experience without that, um, which gave me the courage to say, you know, there's something really important going on with these uh, sabbaticals. Every person I talked to who had taken one, and actually many more people than I expected had done so, um, said that it was by far one of the most important experiences of their entire life. Wow. So the more people from the more different walks of life that I spoke to who said this, I was thinking, you know, there's, there's some secret sauce here. There's some magic that I feel like has broader applicability, but, you know, being a, you know, like a white Ivy league educated entrepreneur man, I'm like, all right, let's, let's like expand the catchment a little bit. Are you also a uh, cis, cis male too? So you got all of them. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, uh, and so I, I thought, I thought it was fair to try to expand the catchment and, and understand, you know, is this experience unique to people who have the privilege to be able to take it? Or is there something, you know, more broad here that's relevant? Um, so I teamed up with a, a professor at Notre Dame who studies well-being at work. Um, mm. he is, his name's Matt Bloom. He actually has a, a really interesting and similar story where he worked uh, for Lehman up until his mid thirties and just basically had the same kind of, uh, you know, experience where he didn't find meaning in it anymore and went back, got his PhD to try to help study this and help people find meaning um, and have a healthy relationship between themselves and work. So um, we, we started doing research uh, last year. And so we're currently wrapping up a manuscript um, that'll be published, uh, hopefully before the end of the year on this topic. Um, what I wanted to, to reflect on based on what you said was that the journey that people go on, one of the things we found from the research was that it's so much more influenced by things like, uh, f- your family's orientation towards work, um, early job experiences, uh, than you would think. I think most people feel as though they're, they've been in control of their journey towards work through work. Um, and what we found is when we'd ask people, you know, what, what, tell us about your experience, tell us about your journey through work. It almost always was oriented to, uh, experience that they had very early on. So, mm. you know, my, my dad worked super hard. And mm. so I thought that was great. Or my, my parents were never home. And so I definitely wanted to do the opposite or they were doctors. And so I felt like being a doctor was the only way to do good at work. Um, so that's an important pen that I want to place just with people's journeys through work. Like the sabbatical seems to be able to offer perspective as to how did you choose this? Did you choose it? How have you evolved over time and how have you got to know yourself and how inconsistent is what you're doing or how you're approaching work with who you are and who you've become and who you want to be? Hmm. I mean, and, and is it when you guys were looking at the research do more people that are privileged take sabbaticals? Because I mean, it sort of seems that those with the resources have the option to, you know, not work for what is it, you know, I don't know what the minimum sabbatical that's recommended, but, you know, somewhere above a month and less than a year or something. But have you found that even those that may not have the resources, it's beneficial? Or have you found that it's beneficial? I, I guess I'm I guess the the struggle that I have, well, it's not a struggle. I mean, I can see a huge amount of value in just perspective, right? I mean, 
I try to do things, you know, every day that sort of move the world forward, right? And and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a second um, and what you do on a daily basis. But I'm curious if this sabbatical concept uh, does sort of transcend, you know, socioeconomic, you know, cis white tall male guys, you know, um, or is it really for the? I can't say I'm tall, but <laughs> okay. Is it really for the elite, or or what? What what have you guys found? So first of all, I guess if I could ask you a question, what would you do um, if you had three months off, six months off? I mean, I would probably do exactly what I'm doing now, um, which is talk to people like you and probably write a write another book. I mean, I'm always working on a book. I mean, that's actually where we met through StoryGrid, which was really cool in uh, Nashville, probably one of the <laughs> only uh, events that will actually have had gone on. I mean, I think we got in right underneath the, uh, <laughs> the, the wire there, but, uh, I'd probably write more, um, do more physical activity. I mean, I do that now, but I, it probably take it upon myself to sort of write down what I'm doing now, which, you know, I, I do as sort of a constant thing for my own learning and for processing my feelings and emotions, but probably do more of that. I, I don't know if I would do anything different per se, but, you know, I mean, I, I kind of run a consulting, you know, PR and marketing firm now, and it's have sort of that, you know, I have the option, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think one of the things that we found in the research, and I'll get back to your question in just a second, is just what we term as um, functioning workaholism. So, mm -hmm. you know, piggybacking off the definition of um, a functional alcoholic where, like a lot of people can't recognize that that there's an alcoholic in their midst because those folks have adapted their life it's kind of incorporated this really unhealthy habit and disease and just being a functional adult and they've been able to juggle that while also not having you know all the balls fall down um what we see is that people are usually existing in in a way of working where they don't acknowledge that the way they work is unhealthy for them and it's difficult for them to see that until they step out from it so, you know, we interviewed 50 some odd folks for the research. You know, these are multi-hour, deep qualitative interviews. I've probably spoken to 200 people informally or outside of the research context. And you just be blown away by the stories you hear where someone's like, yeah, you know, I was hospitalized twice for an ulcer. And, you know, I had like a trigger finger lock for two years and like none of the doctors could get it to resolve. And then on my first week of sabbatical, I went to a wellness retreat in Bali where I sailed across the Pacific Ocean and all of those symptoms disappeared. Wow. Right? And, and like wow. when you're living in it yeah. and you're, you have coworkers that are doing the same thing, you, you're like, oh, well, this is life. This is health. This is how things are. Right. And it, it takes this kind of like perspective to even know that the way you were working was completely inhuman, right? Huh. Um, Interesting. So I think that, that perspective piece is important. Um, to, to your question about, uh, whether it can be viable for people that don't have privilege. I mean, first of all, um, about a third of the people in the research sample, uh, went on company sponsored or sanctioned sabbaticals, right? So for those folks, I mean, especially if your company is paying for it, then privilege has nothing to do with it, right? I mean, we think of sabbaticals as being something where, well, of course you'd have to be able to quit and, you know, afford to live without money coming in and, you know, take extravagant vacations. Um, that definitely does not have to be true. And for the folks 
whose employer offer paid sabbaticals or sanctioned sabbaticals. Um, even if it's not paid, but you know that every seven years you get a half a year off, you can save up for that. Um, that kind of takes that privilege piece out of there. And as far as whether or not people of different socioeconomic status get benefit from this, absolutely, right? I mean, I interviewed a lady who there's actually uh, private foundations that fund nonprofits um, are increasingly offering sabbaticals to nonprofit leaders. Hmm. So I think the first one to do this was the Durfee Foundation in L.A., um, but there's a, I think a McGregor fund grant in Detroit that offers you know, its portfolio nonprofits, um, their leaders to take a fully paid sabbatical. So this, this woman has, has been working, you know, in the homeless services space for 30 some odd years. She's never taken wow. you know, more than a week's vacation. And all of a sudden her funder says, nope, you know, we want to give you an 18 month full pay sabbatical so that you can recharge and do things that you haven't been able to do. And also so that we as the funder can kind of see like how well will this organization survive without this person, Oh, right? interesting, yeah. And so I think one of my visions for the sabbatical project is to to convince venture capital firms that it's, it's actually beneficial for them to not have this key personnel risk for the CEO of the startup. Right. Um, both because they would be in greater health and, and be able to run the business better, but also they can see truly the condition of the organization when they step out of it, right? Hmm. Um, and so I think you wouldn't think of a nonprofit employer, nonprofit leader, as someone who'd be able to have the privilege to, uh, to take a sabbatical. And, and you know that experience was life-changing for her personally. She got to do a religious retreat. She got to get certified as a coach, um, which she'd always wanted to do. And it ended up changing their approach to how they do homeless services in more of like a transformative like coaching you know long-term comprehensive case management approach um, which she never would have had the capability to do or the idea to do had she not done that and so um, that's actually some of the most inspiring stories from the research are people that you know cram into an rv with their three kids and you know they're eating cans of tuna every day they're not blowing out the budget and going on a yacht right right um, and they come back with you know life-changing experiences where they got to know their kids in a new different way and they got to appreciate their spouse in a way they huh. never had. So um, I think the re like the summary of the research for me is that this is um, an essential tool for people to regain their kind of humanity, do deep identity work. And I think it's actually one that we used to have as humans. It used to be integrated in uh, our religious lives and, and the seasons of, of agriculture that we just have lost. It's not right. that we're creating it from, from new. Right. Huh. Yeah. I never would have thought that, you know, for, I mean, I actually, actually not true. I, I do see uh, a lot of value in stepping away from what you're doing to get perspective because perspective is one of those things where it is so hard to see when you're in it, that something you may be doing, may be not good for you. <laughs> um, and that a lot of entrepreneurs run into that problem where, you know, they're working so hard on trying to birth this idea, the, you know, the the company that they're just like burning the midnight oil, burning out like you did. I've burned out too lots of times that I didn't know was burnout until I either got laid off or quit my job or my health got so bad that I just couldn't work anymore. And then you know, this gets all compounded if you have this sort of mentality and then something tragic happens, 
like in my case, my, my wife got leukemia and, or she's now my late wife got leukemia and you just can't like open up your life for anything else. Well, I mean, I had to, right? Because, you know, leukemia is not something that you can just like, oh, put this off for another six months. No, it was like, I literally quit my job, started running her PR firm, was her care, full-time caregiver, and we just went all in. And I, we could do that because, you know, she had a, a company that was her own and, and we had that flexibility. A lot, of, Obviously, a lot of people don't have that flexibility, but I can see how what you're talking about on the sabbatical front and how to take the time. And, and it it's just interesting because it seems like it is a a kind of a an antidote to this overworking phenomenon where you know people talk about life balance and they talk about how you know you have to have a work and a life and 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 I get that and in some cases people that are creative or people that love what they do you know that is their life like if like uh, like what I said if if I could just write <laughs> or do podcasts and like that made my money you know I would do that and and I would feel very satisfied and I don't think I'd have to take a sabbatical per se but then again my life would not be as chaotic I mean and you know you're a writer so you know there's only a certain amount of creative time you have I mean and then it's done like yep can't I can't I can't write anymore I'm too too drained on it is is this you think the sabbatical idea and concept to sort of move us more towards a more you know, like a better way to work? Or do you think no matter what we do, it's always good to have this step back and this sort of time for reflection? So I have a, a lot of things I'd like to respond to about what you just said. And thank you for sharing that personal detail. Um, I know that you and I haven't gotten a chance to speak to each other enough um, to, to kind of flesh that out. So I appreciate you being vulnerable there. I mean, one thing I would say is that there's, there's a really famous TED talk by this uh, designer, Stefan Sagmeister, who he instituted a sabbatical policy at his firm. So very prestigious design firm. He shuts it down every seven years and everyone has to go off and, and do their own thing. And he, he attributes that to it's not waiting until there's something that precipitates this. It's saying there's value, inherent value in getting other experiences, you know, doing something that's personally valuable that will then you know, consequently add value back in the business, right? And so folks like that would would say that there's absolutely a value in kind of just doing something else for a period that would enhance the thing that you were doing and also maybe change the thing that you were doing. Um, to your to your point and to your lived experience, you know, that story of of your late wife is very similar to the majority. So two thirds of the respondents. Um, had some sort of what we call fortuitous event, which catalyzed their sabbatical, almost all negative, right? Yeah. Maybe one person sold their company and, you know, had a bunch of money and went and traveled, but most people, they don't know that it's possible and they don't know that they need to. And they never thought, you know, it was an option to take time off until life kind of happened to them. Right. So it's, it's most often some sort of negative health issue with themselves or someone close to them that forces them to leave their job or forces them to say like, wow, this is actually more important right now. So I think that's another misconception about sabbaticals that it's just, you know, traipsing around the world, having a great time. <laughs> the majority of them are just 
a very different life that you all of a sudden have to live, which yeah. gives you this perspective, right? Oh, yeah. I've totally, my perspective on things completely changed after that experience. And, you know, I, I would I would wonder, I, I would submit based on what I've heard, but I would wonder, you know, had that not happened, you know, what kind of life would you be living now? And do you owe the fact that you're like, no, you know, and if I had more time to do stuff, I would probably be doing more of the things I'm doing now. Do you owe that, that kind of emergency break, you know? Oh, yeah. Open the parachute oh, yeah. that you had. Oh, no, no. I mean, I... I mean, it sounds, it sounds kind of crazy. And I'm actually writing a book about my experience. Um, one of the reasons, you know, I went to that story grid nonfiction uh, seminar with you as well in Nashville, other than I'm a, you know, certified story grid editor and all that sort of stuff. But what what's interesting about that experience is it did dramatically change my life. I don't think I'd have the same attitude I have right now if I hadn't gone through it. I certainly don't think I would have quit drinking and doing, you know, drugs, drugs being marijuana to, to sleep because of all the stress and anxiety. And I, I don't think I would be the same person. And while it's tragic and every day, you know, I think about Jane, who's my late wife, and I get upset sometimes that she was taken from the world and from me, you know, too soon. Uh, one of the things that, I mean, I have a fiance now who's got a 10 year old daughter. So, you know, I found love again. I've got lucky again. Like when people say, would you rather uh, be good or be lucky? <laughs> I'm like, I've been lucky a lot and I'd rather be lucky. <laughs> it's just hundred percent. Um, and I just would not be the person I am today. And, and it sounds sort of strange, but I'm actually a better person having gone through that experience having written about it, having talked about it. You know, I, I do occasionally, we'll, we'll talk to other uh, widowers about the experience and, and try to help other men because, you know, men have a harder time with grief by probably an order of magnitude, it seems, than than women do. Uh, and that's just cultural. That's, I think, a lot to do with what you're talking about in terms of, you know, what identifies you is your work. If you're one of those people that you're like, no, my life is my work and this is who I identify with and I have all these external trappings. And when things go wrong, like your spouse gets sick, you lose your job, you're on disability, you know, if you're that kind of person, which, you know, majority of could be men, there's obviously some women or people that identify as either, uh, it gets, it's pretty bad. I mean, it, it gets to the point where you really can't, uh, be, um, in, any kind of, I don't know where the words to, it's, it's hard to express, but I, I, th I think, yeah, if I was to, yeah, if I was to say, I, I'm definitely better off having taken the quote unquote break, which wasn't a break, but it was a complete change of life. I mean, I would call it the, the 15 month, uh, <laughs> healthcare sabbatical. I was still working hard, but I wasn't doing what I was doing before. Exactly. Yeah. I, I think, so a lot of the things you're talking about in, in the academic literature, they talk about, um, you know, thing clarifying quote core life values or quote moral convictions or ultimate concerns. Right. And these are things that I think it's very difficult to expect someone to, 
be thinking about in everyday routine life, <laughs> um, let alone having the space and time as we, we now do, not to, to make this totally about the present, but I think like a very, very slim silver lining to the new reality that we live in is that, you know, if you, if you can grasp it, there's a lot of extra time, yeah. less kind of distractions that you can use to, to be able to think about these types of things. And there's kind of like this, this like moral imperative where you're, you're thinking about things in terms of life and death, which in the everyday routine life just doesn't, doesn't happen to folks. And so I think what I would submit based on my experience of the sabbatical and the research, um, similar to your experience, just is imagine that you could achieve similar types of perspective and life altering experiences and self-knowledge without waiting for something bad to happen and doing it on your terms, right? That's like, that's the potential of a sabbatical is saying bad things will happen for sure over the course of people's lives. Imagine that you have kind of a, a structure where every five, seven years, you're ejecting yourself from routine life and allowing for some of these growth moments, self-realizations to happen on your terms, um, which gives you this kind of self-confidence about being able to make change. It gives you uh, more assurance about what we call your true self. So like claiming your, your core self and your core identity. Um, as waypoints over the course of your life that you're, you're doing mostly intentionally versus having something horrible happen, which is the first time you're, you're clarifying those values and, and figuring out what matters to you and making kind of course corrections in your life. So like, that's why I think sabbaticals can be so powerful is harnessing this, this effect that, that has on folks in a more intentional, purposeful manner. Would you do that in an everyday life scenario? I mean, how do you, set that up how how is it that you can set up your business your life so that you can take those five to seven you know every five to seven years take some time off because i mean a lot of people listen to this going like yeah okay whatever dj you know again you know you're privileged or you had an exit or you know you're doing all these things that um, you're set up and and i know you know i know that that's not exactly the case for all the people you interviewed. And of course, it'll come out in the book, which I'm very much looking forward to reading and, and want to talk a little bit more about uh, in a second. But but how do you how do you do that? How do you in your daily life, set it up so that you can take these five to seven year, you know, in, in every five to seven years, take some time off? It's a good question. I mean, I think, first of all, one of the reasons why we kind of established the sabbatical project is advocacy around if you can provide research and evidence that this actually does benefit individuals, but also has a neutral or positive effect on businesses that those enabling policies can, can come from that. Right. And so, as I was saying before, it's a complete no brainer to take three or six months off every five years. If your company not only, you know, pays you or, or retains your benefits, but also, has it as a part of their culture and celebrates it, right? So one of my my favorite kind of authors and sets of books are by the uh, 47 Signals guys um, who wrote Rework. And now the re- latest book was It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work. So they offer, I think, a month every three years paid sabbatical. They pay people for their vacations every year. So, you know, one thing that that people don't realize is a recent study showed that 17% of U.S. companies have sabbatical policies. A lot of times you got to search for them. So 
Um, for example, I have a friend that worked for the U.S. Treasury, and he found out through chatting to another coworker that she had taken advantage of this leave without pay um, program. And so, like, you maintain your same seniority, you maintain benefits, you're guaranteed your job, and you're able to leave, you know, for up to one year every six years or something. So the first thing is, how can we uh, people who are in the position inside of businesses, managerial or, or ownership position to create enabling policies, that's like the, the best way, right? So you don't even have to think about it being a trade-off or a sacrifice. Um, countries like Australia have uh, long service leave policies where every civil servant and, and most business uh, employees qualify for this, right? So that's the goal. That's like the, what are we moving towards? I think in the meantime, um, first, I mean, if you if you have it as something that you value, um, and you you say you know, we're going to do this in five years, or we're going to do this when our kids are in this age in school, then you can start saving for it, right? And I would argue that you, many people can probably adjust their spending and savings behaviors based on something that's five or seven years in the future, so that it becomes possible. Um, you know, the other thing that we've seen through the research is that people develop this kind of different relationship between themselves and money over the course of their sabbaticals. Cause they're often, even if they're privileged and have a fair amount of money, they're often living in a way that's very different from how they normally live. So you're like, wow, I can, you know, there was a CTO of a, a company that, that took off and they went to an, an Island um, above the Arctic circle in Scandinavia. And his wife was like the school marm, kind of like the one schoolhouse teacher for that year. And so, you know, here he had gone from making all this money over the course of his life and always trying to get promotions and make more to realizing that like they could live on a school teacher's salary quite easily. And so that enabled him to feel like he could quit that job, you know, start something that doesn't make as much money and they can actually live in a, in a healthier, fulfilled way with less money. Um, and his company, I think, interestingly enough, uh, he shuts it down every summer. So it follows the school teacher academic year. Um, and so for all of his employees, they also shut down for three months. Um, so I think, you know, practicing kind of savings and spending behavior based on saving up for something in the future versus like, can everyone afford to just leave their job tomorrow? Like, absolutely not. Right. Um, but if it's a practice that you kind of, you build towards, I think it's much more attainable. Um, so I think those are, those are good things to start with. Yeah. Of having a kind of a goal for that. I mean, you know, one of the things that a lot of people, especially entrepreneurs, they're always like, oh, you know, when I get the exit, when I get funding, when I get the next growth, I mean, there's, you just chase, you chase the metrics. I mean, constantly, there's never, I don't think it's ever good enough. I mean, I think you had the story where, or, you know, the, the person you talked to that successful uh, CEO of a, or CTO or C-level guy um, in, in technology here in the Valley, like no one's ever satisfied <laughs> unless it's like grow, 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 grow. And that's pretty, well, I mean, I find that, um, you know, that, that all that stuff is sort of muted when it comes to real life. I mean, when you go through a pretty catastrophic event, I mean, given what we're going through right now with the COVID-19 and we're all on kind of, you know, stay in place orders and most of the world's being impacted by this. I mean, there's, this is going to be a pretty brutal, you know, couple of months, maybe years, right? Cause it's, it's a huge disruption in the world. And so 
you know, people are having, you know, quarantine parties and, and all that sort of stuff and trying to, you know, make the best of it. But what a, what what also happens is you sort of get to the sense of what's really important. And it takes a little bit of time. Um, my guess is about another month of this and you'll start to see more and more people really start to evaluate what matters to them. Um, and and so through your research for the book, what what were some of the things that really mattered to people when they came back from a sabbatical or as they were going through a sabbatical? Were there themes of what mattered or was it pretty much kind of dependent on where they came from or where they are? Because it would seem to me, again, this is why I would love to get your answer on this, that there'd be some common themes. And did, did you see any common themes? Yeah, I mean, when people come back, first of all, th- these are not surprises. Like you're not going to fall out of your seat. Um, you know, if you read the like the Grant study, that like really long longitudinal study on happiness ab- among Harvard graduates, basically what it says is that the thing that matters is relationships, right? So the thing that makes people happy are, are relationships. And that definitely, you know, comes through in, in our research as well. So people, they they talk about how they're able to spend time with folks in a way that um, is a total no brainer. And it makes you wonder why we don't do this, but you know um, how much time do you get to spend with your family, with your loved ones? You know, how rushed are you during these, during these events? Normally, you know, how many distractions do you have going on? So just spending quality time with people um, kind of reorients people towards wanting to spend more quality time in the future and, and carve out time. Um, so stronger relationships. I think uh, one of the most important takeaways is uh, people's relationship with risk and change. So, I mean, for for most everyone, whether you are quitting your job and deciding you know not to look for a job for a period of time to, to have a unique experience, or you're stepping away from your job, like that feels very risky, right? And you know, everyone says that they thought they were taking this gigantic risk and what'll happen and will I ever get a job again? And will I be able to afford it? And every single person to a T is saying that that was the best experience of their life. I'm like, oh, that, that actually wasn't that risky. Like if I thought that was risky, you know, I can do a lot of different things now. So the kind of the courage and understanding that, you know, life changes a lot of times you can't control it. And, you know, it may seem like you're stepping off a huge cliff, but once you get to the other side, you're like, oh, that wasn't so bad. And now the next thing that I want to do might might have seemed even unattainably risky before, and now I can do it. So people's relationship with with risk and their ability to change, um, you know, is altered fundamentally. Um, and I think, you know, this also just this, this stronger self-identity and um, core self, as we kind of call it. So you you get to know who you are outside of the, the confines of the kind of, um, you know, scaffolding of all the different uh, identities and things you were told over time, right? So um, you're stepping away from this role as a consultant, you're stepping away from this role as a high achiever, and you're saying, you know, what would life be like if I didn't plan something for, you know, a week at a time? Um, and so this, like, this, the stronger sense of self that you know what you are doing now and what you will do in the future is more consistent with who you are versus, you know, as a, a product of just external forces. So, you know, relationships, the ability to change, 
and you know better self-knowledge i guess would, would be how i'd summarize it okay yeah i mean again yeah no <laughs> no surprise i think it's more almost seems like it's more of a mindfulness at some degree like what you would get out of meditation and mindfulness and what matters and sort of how you look at the world and everything um and and so yeah i mean i'm i'm curious you know we met through story grid uh, which I'm a big fan of, and obviously I'm a certified story grid editor, and I, you know, I'm I drank the Kool Aid and part of the cult and everything like that. So, uh, tell me a little bit about how writing this book, you know, the process and how you found Story Grid, and I'm just really curious because, you know, it's it's not very often that you meet, you know, folks that uh, really do want to take deep dive into story and, you know, write better stories. And, you know, that's what the story grid's all about. And and it's really a great, you know, tool. Um, and I'm just curious how you found it, how you, how you're writing your book, what, what, what you feel is kind of be your contribution to it. Cause it, I'm, you know, again, I'm really looking forward to reading it. It sounds like a great, uh, read. And of course, you know, since you are trying to use the story grid <laughs> to, to, to write it, then it'll probably be a good book and it'll probably work because that's what the whole method's about. So tell me a little bit about, about that process and, and how, how writing this has uh, either changed your life or what you've learned. Yeah, well, I hope you have another hour and are ready to take the therapist chair here because <laughs> if if one didn't feel isolated while trying to write a book to begin with, then add on to that like enforced isolation. <laughs> But um, the, the reason I came to StoryGrid is uh, I had a friend who wrote a memoir who mentioned that that she she used it and liked it, and so um, I just kind of Googled around and, and found, you know, because I have never written anything before. I think one of the things that the sabbatical opened up for me was um, this kind of permission to be creative again. I think that you know. The box that I had put myself in was this, you know, here's the narrow, narrow definition of success, graduate from this school, land this job, graduate from this school, start this thing. Um, it, that wasn't really consistent with, and I'm just going to tool around and, and make a song on a ukulele and perform it at an open mic, right? Like that's very intimidating to the type of identity that, that has like pretty strict definitions of what success is, right? Um, and so it freed me up to, to write, to compose songs and, and think about, you know, my life and, and doing it a little bit differently and even engaging in like more, I think, risky, um, career moves, which I, I think this is, um, you know, kind of quitting everything to, to write a book. And, um, so when I, when I researched story grid, I found they had this kind of concept of, you know, inside of the nonfiction genre, this big idea. And so kind of in the vein of Malcolm Gladwell tipping point or Michael Pollan, um, you know, how, you know, coming up with an idea and kind of being this, this kind of journalistic protagonist that's saying, I found this thing. I was really curious and excited by it. I, I tracked it down and, and, you know, learned more about it. And I want to share my findings with you. I think that's been what I've been doing with my life the past couple of years. And so it was exciting just to see that someone had kind of identified this genre and said like, yes, what you are doing has value and it's, it's normal. And this is the process through which these kinds of books are written. And so even learning that and going to that workshop uh, was, was very affirming because, um, as you know, it's a pretty solitary endeavor out here. And so um, I think it was a good catalyst and kind of kick in the pants to, to get going on it and also feel as though, um, as opposed to my friend who wrote the memoir, I mean, she 
definitely did research and interviews and things like that. But a lot of what she wrote was inside of her. Um, a lot of what I'm needing to write, you know, was a little bit of my experience, but is really trying to track down, you know, how did we get to this place where, you know, most people are disengaged with work and burnt out and um, like, how did work evolve over time? And was there such thing as, as kind of sanctioned time off in the past? And, you know, what happened to that? And what cultures, is that still acceptable? And what do we have to learn from those? So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm quite excited. I'm definitely still at the, at the beginning of the journey, but um, it's been an interesting process. And I think having that, that community of people that are going through a similar journey was, was very helpful and, and life-affirming. Yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely writing a book's a lonely endeavor, and um, I'm glad you found the community, and it's it's a real powerful framework and methodology. I mean, I, I use it to write pretty much everything. In fact, I also use it in my day job as a PR and marketing communications professional. I use the same framework because stories are universal, um, and even if you're hawking tennis shoes or trying to solve a pandemic, the stories that we tell are what prompt people to action. And I always say the brand company organization that tells the best story wins and or becomes the most influential because, you know, it's in our DNA. And I think that's what Sean and Tim and the seminars have done is really get down to the fundamentals of what's already inside all of us. And, you know, you'll find, that, you know, you'll find it a little frustrating at times as we all do on the writer journey. But, uh, I'm glad that you're, you know, it is interesting because I think that sabbatical process that you went through is, is actually similar to the writing process in the sense that, you know, you need to explore a topic, especially if you're writing a big idea nonfiction book or you're writing a memoir. And, and even if you're writing a, a novel, it's an exploration of the inner self, so to speak. So what stories do you tell yourselves? What's inside your head? And, and sometimes the only way you can get there is by stepping back and really being almost looking in on yourself. And I think this idea of the sabbatical lets you do that. I think it lets you step outside the status quo, look into your world from a different perspective. And I've always found that, at least on my entrepreneur journey, when I've been able to look into different areas of my life and different markets from different perspectives. That's where the innovation, that's where the creativity comes from. So really fascinating stuff. Do, do you have a title yet or, or is it a working title or do you don't want to say? Um, I I guess this is kind of like uh, sharing your kid's name before you have a baby. <laughs> so I hadn't thought about telling folks, but um, I've got a couple ideas. I think that one of them plays off um, the expression time well spent. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so I think it's time off well spent. Oh, Great, great, great. And then the other direction is a question I often get is, you know, how long does it have to be in order to be a sabbatical? Right. You know, it's kind of a frustrating question. Like, what's the, I got it. I, I believe that all the benefits that you accrue are there. Like, what's the, what's the shortest amount of time that I can take off in order to get right. those benefits? Right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> Which is like so indicative of the issue that we're dealing with. Oh, I know. I mean, that's pretty so, much, <laughs> that's the, there you go. Like everyone as wants a quick said, fix. As my buddy said, you know, what's the shortest amount of time you can visit Paris? I mean, yeah. It's just an absurd question. It is. It's um, total absurd. Yeah. And so the, that kind of working title in that vein is, is long enough to be. Mm. Um, I think that our vacations are, are still kind of swapping out 
this doing mindset. Like I'm yeah. going to like go scuba diving. I'm going to yeah, go yeah. to Hawaii. Um, whereas a sabbatical, you start to, you start to be right. You start to like live that life as, a, as opposed to like tick off a, a bucket item or something. Right. And so right, that's, right. I think the, the kind of philosophical answer to mm. how long does it have to be? Well, great. I mean, thanks again. I think that's a good place to, to stop and uh, looking forward to reading the book and, you know, figuring out maybe one day my own sabbatical journey, although I've had, uh, I guess, a, <laughs> a different kind of sabbatical. But uh, DJ, uh, thanks so much for being on the pod. Great. Thanks so much, Jerry. Thanks for listening to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did creating it. My hope is that you learned something that can make you a little bit better. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do share it with friends and review it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also join my email list by visiting thedailymba.com to get my thoughts on what I'm doing to get better, as well as what I'm working on. You can also pick up my book, The Entrepreneur Ethos, if you want to learn the traits, values, and beliefs that I think we need to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient entrepreneur, and frankly, world community. Feel free to follow me on Twitter at The Daily MBA and let me know if you have any questions or recommendations for a guest that you'd like me to talk to. Also, drop me a note if you try anything we talked about in this or any other episode. I'd love to hear what's working for you. Until next time, keep getting better. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in a new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series now streaming on Showtime.